Episode 1, Photime, the other ham radio podcast. Aries responds to the Joplin tornado disaster, an after-action report. Why did you become a ham radio operator? And more, coming up. AmateurRadio15.com presents Photime, the other ham radio podcast. Sponsored by Main Trading Company. Find them online at mtcradio.com. Now, here's your host, Kale Nelson, K4CDN. It's faux time, and my name is Kale, Kilo 4 Charlie, Delta November from the upstate of South Carolina. Thanks for tuning in, downloading, and hopefully subscribing to the, to the podcast here. It is the other ham radio podcast, not knocking anyone else's. There's a lot of great information out there. This is just to compliment everyone else, okay? Uh, I don't want to say we're scraping the bottom of the barrel here, but I'm not the smartest guy regarding amateur radio. And you'll figure that out pretty quickly. But I'm going to bring you some great guests, and we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to have a lot of inside jokes and whatnot. And uh, I'm really excited. So thank you for, for bearing with me through my uhs and huhs. I'm a 10-year veteran of non-commercial radio. I've been out of that for a few years. Uh, I've been here at the house, homeschooling my children, and I gave up the... Uh, the, the gig at the non-com to more focus on the homeschooling. Things are going really well in that. And I wanted to get back behind the microphone. I'm really digging amateur radio. It's been a dream of mine for years. I've been licensed for about four. I've been a ham, I've been a radio nerd basically my entire life. So ham and me kind of went together pretty good. Now the podcast thing seems to work. So let me give a shout out to my friends down at Maine Trading Company. They are our show sponsor, and you can find them online at mtcradio.com. Richard and Christy Lenore are some fabulous people. So if you're needing some new gear, some used gear, you've got some gear to trade against something, you need to give them a call, and you can find all the information for that on our website at amateurradio15.com. Also, a big shout out to my buddies on ARFCOM, FUA Rock, and others. Thank you guys for listening and, and yeah, telling all your buddies about it, okay? So uh, here we are, and we're going to get the show started. I've got some calls from some amateurs and why they got licensed. Also, coming up in the podcast, we're going to have an interview with Cecil Higgins, who was the ham in charge for the Joplin Tornado Recovery with the Aries Group there in Missouri. So stay tuned, guys. A lot of fun. Right here on Photime. This is Kilo Golf 4, Golf Victor Lima, and I first became a licensed amateur radio operator because I wanted a fun way to serve my community and establish myself as an electronics hobbyist, Um, and I've done so to great effect. People ask me what good is ham radio, and I tell them that it's a lot of fun, and I've only ever had to save somebody's life with it once. Uh, That was during an event that I was working in conjunction with a club in Atlanta, and I was able to coordinate an ambulance to arrive at uh, bicycle-borne EMTs who were assisting a guy who was in the middle of having a heart attack. So to serve and to have fun playing around with electronics. That's why I got into ham radio. So there you go. Hey, man, thanks for calling in and letting us know. We'll put the number up for you to call. We've got some random questions here and there on our voicemail. Call in, leave your replies. We'll get them on the show. Thank you for the participation. Up next, I want to play for you an interview that I conducted just a few days ago with a gentleman by the name of Cecil Higgins, Alpha Charlie Zero Hotel Alpha. Cecil is the district emergency coordinator for District D in Missouri. He was the ham in charge during the Joplin tornado disaster of 2011. And uh, he's got quite a story to share with us. He's been an amateur radio operator for 20-plus years. He's a retired law enforcement officer, a retired emergency manager, and a certified firefighter. He's been playing in public service for over 30 years. Cecil, thank you for joining us on the Photime Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Guys, we're going to talk to Cecil a little bit about the... um Joplin tornado disaster. Cecil, that was 2011, am I correct? Uh, yes, it was. May 22nd, actually. 2011. May 22nd, 2011. Uh, last count was 162 lives lost, well over 1,150 folks injured, and it's said to be the costliest tornado disaster in the history of the United States of America. And Cecil, you were right there in the middle of it. You were the ham in charge for the Missouri 
State Aries in District D. Tell us a little bit about what happened that day and what the uh, the District D Aries folks did for the uh, the folks in the recovery. Well, it started out uh, we were watching the weather, and uh, the, the odd thing about that that whole storm was it was a kind of a weather anomaly. It wasn't a normal storm the way it the way it occurred. The weather service had had let us know that we we could possibly have tornadoes F two maybe an F three. For all of us that respond to stuff like that, and uh, you know, so we really wasn't looking for for an F5 wipe out half the city kind of tornado. When the storm come together right there on the western edge of Joplin and spawned an F5, it, it happened it, really quickly. Uh, the the tornado was moving extremely slow, but it, it developed incredibly incredibly fast. We got the call, uh, we as in Aries, got the call to, to assist with communications from the Red Cross first. We responded to the Red Cross sheltering. They're, they had set up sheltering there at the Missouri uh, Southern State University on the campus there just, just north of the city, Joplin. And we were providing communications for that. Uh, I had gotten a call to go down there to be in charge after that had gotten set up by Ken Barrymore, who was at the time the state emergency coordinator, and I was the assistant district emergency coordinator for District D. And when we got the call to go down there, we, we went down there, and it was kind of the, the, the role of that mission expanded exponentially. It was, it was incredible how fast that, that role changed. But we, we responded, and we got down there, and we were providing the communications for the Red Cross to begin with. In, in Missouri, which is what we consider, it may not be officially termed that, but you guys have a lot of storms in the spring and the early summer. You guys have uh, quite an array of gear that you use uh, in your Aries groups. I'm, I'm assuming that you guys have already gone through the front-end steps. You've already created the groups. You've already assigned folks. You have teams for dispatch and uh, things ready to go and, and uh, gear packs stowed and preparations made. Is that a correct assumption? Well, at that time, yes, we ha we had some areas that was prepared to, to do that. We we weren't as nearly as prepared as we are now, and, and unfortunately. Uh, but yes, we did have we did have radio teams and stuff that was that was prepared to go to a disaster inside our district. Uh, the the kind of the way Aries works, for those who don't know, is uh, you have a state emergency coordinator, then you have your district emergency coordinator for however many counties. District D is the largest district in Missouri, has 18 counties involved, and each one of those counties has what they call an EC, which is an emergency coordinator. And those people were already there, of course. They were on scene. Unfortunately, the fact is the EC for Jasper County had been affected by the tornado. His house was actually damaged, and you know he had he had some stuff going on. What we what we ended up doing was we had some radio people from Marshville, at Webster County, that were prepared to go to this particular kind of a, of a event. Had we known it was as large as it was, we knew we'd, we'd had a huge tornado go through. We we actually had ran several several scenarios in the past, nothing to this scale. What we did was we we were taking our own personal gear that you know we we were we're not funded, we don't receive any grants or anything like that. So we were taking our own personal gear. We took we took camper trailers and and some food that that would last us a few days so we wasn't a burden on the system to take take food away from the people who needed it. And we knew that this was a serious issue. We had seen the radar images. We saw the, the what they call the debris ball on the radar, which is all the all the uh, actual all the debris uh, right, the from the thing. Yeah. And, and it was really bright. I mean, we could see it. it was huge, and we knew right away that you know that when we saw that that we was, we had a serious issue. But uh, we'd taken our stuff down there, and you know we had taken three radios, 
that were multi-band radios. When I say multi-band, I mean like the A57s and the 897 Yezus, uh that would go from 440 all the way up to 160 meters. So basically UHF all the way up to, to the, high, the low end of uh, HF. So we could talk on multiple frequencies with these radios, and then we took a couple of dual-band radios with us that were UHF, VHF. And so that gave us five radios that we could use on UHF, VHF frequencies, and it gave us three radios that we could talk well outside the disaster area and into other states if necessary. And we took push-up poles and uh, small antennas, uh, dipole antennas that we had made out of ham sticks, that were easily portable and lightweight that we could put up on the push-up poles. And we took all that with us and was able to establish our communications relatively quickly. How um, how often do you guys uh, drill, for lack of better terms, uh, personally? How often do you go through your gear? Uh, maybe skip it in the fall and then maybe look over it in the winter and then again in the spring, or is this something that you personally do quite often? Uh, this is something we do on a monthly basis, but we're always using our gear. Um, we take our radios, we'll take them out to the field, we'll run them off a of battery at an emergency-type power generator. We uh, build our build our antennas. Uh, we We work on programming our radios. Uh, that was an issue that we had down there with handhelds is the people didn't know how to program them, and I had to program them through keypad interface for, for and I, I programmed well over 500 radios, handhelds. And uh, that's not the time to need to do that. You know, the people need to know how to enter the frequencies they're using for the for the disaster themselves so they can get on with uh, doing it. So so we learned a few lessons there. And, uh <laughs> Yeah, it was it was it was it was tedious, but you know it wasn't the time to complain. It certainly wasn't the time to teach people because you didn't have time. But it was just best to to enter this information for them and get them out there. But we train on on being able to put up your own antennas, make your own antennas. And the nice thing about making your own is if there's an issue, you know how to fix it. If you get out into the field and have a problem, uh, we train on on keeping those radios programmed, how to how to input a uh, simplex frequency as well as a, a repeater frequency with the offsets and, and tones. If there's tones, usually during the disaster, the tones are turned off. So you don't usually have to worry about that, but you still need to know how to do it just in case. And uh, we, we train monthly on this. Uh, we do bicycle rides to be able to keep up with our radio communications and what works and where it works and where it don't and what kind of coverage we need to take care of to make it work where there are gaps in the communication or where you're in a hole and it, you know, doesn't work. So we train we train extensively. We did this before the the tornado, uh but we we certainly do it you know a lot in, since renewed, that has happened. Renewed vigor since uh renewed vigor since the tornado. So uh Going back to Joplin, you guys got there. You got established. I, I read your after-action report, which will be linked in the uh, show notes for the program. And, and also we're going to link your uh, PowerPoint presentation to help some folks see some visuals of what uh, you guys were seeing there in the field. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But going back to your after-action report, you stated you got on scene. You, you guys got there where you were re- requested to report. And you had comms up within an hour and a half or so. But it wasn't just rolling up and turning your radios on. They tried to put you down in a basement, and you had no way to, to feed your antennas to the outside, and you guys actually had to do some improvisation, some kind of maybe some MacGyver work. And uh, tell us a little bit about that. When you got on scene, on scene being the emergency operations center there uh, for the county, uh, what, what happened when you arrived? Okay, well, when we were done with the communications with, uh, with Red Cross, they they had basically used it used the communications for one day and then they were able to establish their own communications. We'd gotten the request from the Newton County uh, EOC to provide communications between that emergency operations center and the Jasper County Emergency Operations Center. And for for those folks that don't know, the reason they would need that is the Newton County EOC was the 
backup emergency operations center for the Newton County Emergency Operations Center, and Joplin is right there on the line of two counties. So they were, Newton County was requesting us to help them assist them with communications to the emergency operations uh, center because they they wanted to be able to communicate inside and outside. No phone no phone service was working in there, so radio was basically the opportunity for them to communicate that was available. Uh, no more had we gotten requests for them. We got we got the same request for the Jasper County EOC. So we went down to the Jasper County EOC, which was actually in the city of Joplin, uh, and that's where all the tornado and all 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 the everything for the emergency was being being run. Uh, they had an IST team, which is uh, a, you know incident support team that had come in and was down in the FEMA room in the basement. And I don't know if everyone's familiar with the FEMA rooms, but for most people uh, who aren't, the FEMA room is a concrete and force, almost like a bunker. Uh, it is it is absolutely hardened against these kind of weather events, these kind of tornadoes, and any, about any other kind of thing. They 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 handle explosions well, uh, all kinds of stuff. And FEMA has has all throughout the country helped with funding on providing these buildings where you know cities and governments and stuff can have this area to operate in. Well, the problem was they built it really well. <laughs> they really did. Uh, there was no way to run coax for our antennas out from down in the basement of this FEMA room. Well, the basement was the FEMA room, but there was no way to run coax up to get to our antennas. So we couldn't actually sit there and be side-by-side side with with the people operating the emergency operations center. So we got to looking at the building, and we elected to place the Emergency Operations Center communications for Aries at the top of the stairwell in an office. Uh, that allow, It allowed us easy access to the EOC, and should another weather event or something start happening, we had very quick access to get into shelter as well, because at the time, we still, had, we still had storms coming in, and we had funnels that had occurred over the, over the town, you know, after this had happened a couple of days later, uh, I mean, we, people were scared, and we still had weather events going on, and it didn't take much of a cloud for folks to get really upset. So, so uh, we had one tornado siren left in the city. <laughs> so, so you know, it was it was it was something else. So, we got this set up on top, and basically, what we did was we set our radios up. We were running off of the generator power that was provided there for that particular. Uh, public safety center is where it was set up at. We put all our antennas on push-up poles and stuck them up above the building, you know, from the ground, guide them off, had them where they could withstand pretty good wind, and uh, simply ran coax through the ceiling panels and out between the double doors. Most of those buildings have, and most buildings like this will have a set of outside double doors and a set of inside double doors. And that gap between the two doors is where we ran our cables outside and over to our to our antennas, and we were able to to establish our communications quickly. And uh, within an hour and a half of the request to set up for the EOCs, we were we were on the air. Wow, wow, guys! When we get back, we're going to talk some more with Cecil Higgins, who is Alpha Charlie Zero Hotel Alpha, the District D, uh, Missouri Aries Emergency Coordinator. And we're going to talk about the shapes that the local repeaters were in following the Joplin tornado disaster of 2011. Back in just a few minutes here on Photime. Visit mtcradio.com today. A great one-stop mom-and-pop shop for everything ham radio. Radios, antennas, power supplies, wire and cable, books and training materials, microphones, headsets, and accessories. Find popular brands like MFJ, Heil Sound, Jetstream, LDG, Alinko, Comet, Texas Bugcatcher, Radio Waves, and more. mtcradio.com, an authorized Kenwood and Icom dealer. mtcradio.com. Com. Aloha, this is Brundoggy, Whiskey Hotel 6 Echo Echo Yankee. I got into ham radio because I was looking for a hobby that required a little bit of thought, keeps my 
technical intellect keen, especially in the evenings. The only concern I have here is living on an island that we have a very weak infrastructure that's very fragile, and we are prone to things like hurricanes, tsunamis, and things along that line. So a nice backup source of uh, communications is always welcome. That's all I got. Thank you. Aloha. Back with Cecil Higgins, Alpha Charlie Zero Hotel Alpha, the District D, Missouri Aries uh, Emergency Coordinator. Uh, Cecil, thanks again for being with us here on FOTIME. And uh, I've got a question. I haven't thought about this till just now, uh, a few mo- a few moments ago. Uh, what kind of shape were the repeaters in for the local uh, ham radio operators and the, the nets that you guys were operating on? Did you have repeaters? Did you have to put up temporary repeaters? What was the status of those? Well, we actually had both. Uh, there was three repeaters actually left that was available for operational use for what we were doing. We we had talked to all the repeater owners, and they were more than happy to give us uh, the total use of those repeaters throughout the entire disaster. Uh, we had a fourth repeater that was located on top of St. John's Hospital, but the uh, sixth floor of the hospital was completely removed, and wow. our repeater was moved with it. <laughs> so, And that, that's the hospital you can talk about that was twisted four to six inches off its foundation, the entire hospital. So it was a direct hit, and it was a you know it was hit very hard. So uh, yeah, we had we had three of those, and we put them into operation to begin with. It's kind of a as things turn out, as you you're in these kind of disasters, you you find where you've got holes. Uh, it, it's kind of an interesting situation the way it developed. We we had one repeater that we had given specifically for uh, use for Ares. We had another repeater that was given over to the Salvation Army when they came in. And we had a a third repeater that was uh, needing to be used for communications between EOCs. So that locked all three of the repeaters up immediately when we were there. And our job, and we kind of get into a little bit of, of, of future here that we haven't talked about, but our job was to provide these communications to the EOC regardless of what. Well, the EOC came up and said, look, you know, we just we just got to find a way to get real-time information from the from what we have, you know, out there in the field. We're just having a real problem with getting timely information. And I looked that the gentleman asked him what kind of information he's wanting. He said, well, just any kind of real-time information. We can't we can't ask questions. We can't get any information when they have a problem. Uh, you know, it's not 15 or 20 minutes delayed because of our communications issues. So, you know, we're just, you know, he's, he's literally sitting there in, in that office that we're in and holding his head in his hand, and he, he's like, you know, I'm just stressed. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't we put amateur operators with the search and rescue teams, the search and recovery teams, and get them out there with it. And that way, when they're assigned to an area, a grid, we assign these teams to each grid. Then if you have a question, we can simply radio out there and find out for you. And, you know, if they run across something, they can simply radio back here and we can bring it to your attention. He said, can you do that? And I said, well, we've got enough We've got enough radio operators here to that, yes, we can we could provide that if that's what you want to do. And they said, great, that's exactly what we need. And uh, so all the CERT teams and all the, the search and rescue teams and all the dog teams and everything, we I told them, I said, uh, just have them come by here and we'll assign an operator to go with them before they go out. Just let them know they can't go out until they get the operator. Well, they got out into the field and uh, we found a dead spot over by where the hospital was destroyed. Uh, we were very fortunate in this aspect. Uh, we were we had a, a repeater that was a plug-and-play repeater, and for those who don't know what that means, we had a repeater that we were we were able that was ready to be powered up and run, and we were going to put a, an antenna on a push-up pole if we needed to use it. Where the fortunate part comes in was we actually found a 700-foot tower that had a two-meter radio antenna and coax already on it. Wow. We didn't have a repeat. 
but it had it had uh, had the antenna. After just a little bit of time of testing the antenna, we found out the antenna was fine and, and was working fine. So we were able to plug a repeater into that, and that closed the hole that we were we were experiencing in that area. Uh, all the search and rescue teams had handheld radios, so you know they were able to get back to us, and we just set up one of the other radios that we brought in to take that information out of the field. And we had another radio operator back to UOC that was that was taking care of that information and passing on what we needed to pass on. So wow. yeah, an, we, an, un, an unused antenna on a 700 foot tower that did not get harmed during the storm. Exactly, you know, and, and it, it, that that is a miracle in itself. But you know, and those kind of things don't manifest themselves, you know, in, in every disaster, obviously. But but the issue was we were we were very prepared. To put up a 40-foot uh, push-up pole that would have would have rendered us the same uh, the same results as far as being able to use the handhelds in that dead zone, and we were going to set it up if we had to on a crossband repeat radio to get back through the existing uh, repeater that we were using. Thankfully, right. we didn't have to do that. We were able to just plug and play and go. Wow. You're talking about handheld radios and folks going into the field. And, and I've read, as I mentioned earlier, uh, your after-action report. One of the things that struck me and encouraged and actually inspired me personally to build some uh, portable portable kits to uh, either hand out or, or take myself into the field if the need arose. I read where folks were calling who wanted to help. They were wanting to come in and be a part of the recovery effort. Speaking of ham operators here. And they just had just a, a load of gear. They just had gear everywhere in their house and permanently mounted in their cars. And you really needed folks who had field deployable type gear. Tell us a little bit about the hole in our thinking as amateurs, especially regarding if we've got a spare two-meter rig laying around somewhere in a small power supply, uh, a magnet antenna. Tell us tell us the need that you guys found uh, you were looking for folks to come in and help in the effort. Well, the first thing I'd have to say is if you're wanting to help in, in an emergency or disaster, you don't self-deploy. Uh, you know, there there's a process that you need to go through because they need to know if you're in the field. They need to know where you're at in the field. And, and you need to know what hazards they've discovered or what, what kind of things are going out. So there is a process, and you'd have to check with your local emergency managers about how to do that. Because you know they all have a little bit different system, but don't self-deploy. You know, find out find out where the volunteer center is and go through that. Uh, now, having said that, <laughs> the the issue with field deployable equipment is my version of field deployable and somebody else's version of field deployable or definition of field deployable is uh, a lot different from the third person. You know, the bottom line is field deployable is can you take it with you on foot into the field to where we need to communicate and where we need you to go? You know, a lot of a lot of folks had mobile radios in their car and, you know, their truck or whatever they had, and it's great. There's nothing wrong with that. However, you can't, in most cases, take that with you into the field on foot and Trust me, when you look at a disaster zone like this, you're not going to drive in there. I mean, there there's houses for miles strung all together. It's just one huge blender that's been turned upside down. So, you know, that's not a field deployable. Field deployable is something that, now, if you want to put together a backpack unit, which has got a battery, a, a mobile radio, and an antenna that you can put on your back in a backpack and take in, that's field deployable. If it's in your... If it's in your, your your Chevy truck or your your Jeep or or whatever, that's not field deployable. That's mobile deployable, and the difference of the two is, is can be drastic actually. Uh, you know, we were in a position where we needed people on the ground, on foot, going through the rubble, letting us know that they had found somebody who was still alive, or letting us know that they had found you know the remains of someone who wasn't, and we didn't know where it was at. And the search and rescue teams, there was no way that they could have could have got that information 
back to a vehicle because they were walking not just a city block but grids. The EOC had already put up a grid map of the city that was in, in the disaster area. So we were using these grids. You're talking several blocks. So, you, you know, if someone's found alive in the rubble, the last thing they needed to do is run five or six city blocks back to a vehicle and try to communicate information that is now not accurate and delayed. So, you know, field deployable is can you put it on your on your back or can you carry it in your hand or on your belt and, and communicate out of the disaster, you know, from your, from your, on your feet. So, yeah, that, that's field deployable. And if you want to take uh, a, a larger antenna or whatever that can mount to a backpack, nobody's going to tell you not to do that. But, you know, it doesn't matter what you have at home. You know, you're not going to take some of the old radios that were considered mobile radios. Uh, you know, I have you know, a couple of Kenwood uh, 430S radios, and they were considered mobile back in the 80s. And back in the 80s, they were about the size of a briefcase <laughs> So, yeah. and and very heavy. So, obviously, that is not a field-deployable radio for a disaster. It was meant to go mobile in a vehicle and be mounted. So, you know, mobile is exactly that. Field deployable is something you can carry into the field without the assistance of of anything other than, you know, being able to put it on your belt or backpack and carry it in. Right, right. And uh, I'm, I'm going to imagine, as you said, that you hand-programmed 500 walkie-talkies, that you saw quite a few of those... Uh, low-cost Chinese rigs that uh, seem to be the rage right now. But the, the the important part is, in regarding all of that, thank goodness the uh, the repeaters were there, and uh, the new repeater was found to fill the gap, and you guys were to be able, continue to be able to bring information into the EOC for the recovery and uh, the, the entire effort, effort there. Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, uh, a lot of people... <laughs> That, that was my first experience with some of the, the lesser expensive uh, radios, handhelds, and stuff. But the one thing that I found out was they actually worked pretty well for what we were doing. Uh, they're not they're not designed to be dropped on surfaces, hard surfaces, or or wet like a lot of the other radios are. So, but you know they don't cost as much either. But as far as the communications, they were able to communicate just as well. So as far as those radios, they're not going to knock them. But they were interesting to learn how to program because they were <laughs> new, on the, and and I really had to uh, kill a few brain cells to figure out how to how to get those things to program. Right. <laughs> now, um, you guys, you, you've prepared a lot more since the event than you were before the event. Although that you although you were prepared a lot more than some folks in wherever they may be listening are. Uh, here locally, um, as I said earlier, we're working to build up and in, and increase our capacity. A lot of folks are already there. Some folks aren't there yet. What uh what's the best what's the best way that you can encourage someone who's interested in possibly being a part of Aries or Races, um, the volunteer parts of the amateur radio service, um what would you say to those folks who are interested, especially maybe some young listeners or some even some folks who aren't licensed who may be listening and who have a desire to serve? It it takes a, a desire, a heart of service to to do these kind of things, whether you're with the Red Cross or with any, anyone. So if you have a desire to help, uh, especially with amateur radio, uh, I recommend that you 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 can get into it. You know, extremely inexpensive anymore. It used to it costs a lot of money to get into amateur radio. Any any more the way things are, and as inexpensive as the radios have gotten, uh, you can be a tremendous help without really spending a lot of money. Uh, you know, if you're interested in radio, I would suggest getting a hold of any of the radio clubs or any anybody in the area or an Aries or Racy's uh, group. 
in your area and just go in and talk with those people and listen to them and, and see what they do. They'll be more than happy to sit down with a, at a radio with you and show you how it works and what to do. You know, just learn learn what you're what you're thinking you want to do. We kind of, you know, use that interest and, and put it to heart. And for young people, the future of this of radio is, is, is the younger people. It, it's just it's just the way it is. Uh, you know, guys like us, like me, and the guys that were down there, not to take anything away from us because we're older, but, you know, the bottom line is we need fresh young legs, fresh young minds, fresh young people to to actually be able to be field deployable. And uh, field deployable, obviously, is to be able to go out and do what we, we need to do for communications to help save lives and to to help, if nothing else, give closure to families who are missing their loved ones in the disaster. And, you know, and that's not all we do. We, we do bicycle rides. We do community service events. We, you know, we provide communications in several different ways. So, you know, if you get with an active areas group, you're certainly going to use your radio skills, but you're going to have to test. You're going to have to study. Uh, the technician's test is the first one. Uh, and the the general is the second level, and then the advanced level is the amateur extra. And uh, that one that one's pretty tough, to be honest. Uh, but it's meant to be. It's it's meant to be tough enough that when you get it, you've got all the privileges on all the bands. But you know, I recommend that you get at least a general license. Um, study for that. Get. With the general license, it allows you to be on the high-frequency or HF bands where we conduct our emergency communications outside of the disaster area. And I'll use, I'll use like, the Haiti uh, earthquake and stuff like that. Those folks had HF radios, were able to talk into the United States, request help, stuff like that. Now, the Joplin disaster, we used... VHF and UHF communications and very, very little HF because we, we didn't really need to get way outside of that. But, you know, you can study. You can be mentored by uh, another ham radio operator. Um, you know, there, there's many things that you can do, and I, I've listed, you know, several of them. Uh, right. You get community, community assistance. A lot of times they'll uh, they'll ask for radio operators. Once they know you're available... And can do stuff for them. They like you to come in and help them with communications. Uh, and if you guys have bike rides or or marathon runs or anything like that, ham radio operators are usually always used to help with communications at checkpoints, uh, you know, med stations. If uh, you know the, the biggest town right here where we're at, Springfield, Missouri, and we we go out to uh, the big concerts that they have and stuff like that. A lot of times they'll request. Request help. We don't do them all, but they'll request on some of the bigger ones. Uh, the community emergency response teams in the area request our assistance and training with them. So there is a lot that you can do simply by being able to operate a radio, and, and a lot of help that you can give your community that most people don't realize. Not to mention that if the power does go out, or if the cell towers are down, and you're not necessarily involved directly with a recovery effort, uh, you you can still communicate with others uh, where some folks can't. Uh, I mean, it's been proven time and time and time again that uh, when something bad happens, you can't depend on your cell phone. And, of course, we all walk around with them like they're a pacifier or something nowadays, but uh, it's been proven over and over. Here in the last three or four years that they are a great resource but they have their limits, and ham radio gives the user an alternate resource, if you will, to uh, have communications in any sort of emergency or just general good weather. Well, and and, and, and you can have a lot of fun with amateur radio. We we have all kinds of modes of communication we can use. Uh, for those who are big into text messaging, uh, you can thank the amateur community for that because they come up with the what they call uh, digital modes, or, or at the time it was an analog uh, typing, texting, basically. Uh, they were amateur radio operators 
get on were getting on a keyboard and sending messages, type messages, over the airwaves. Another amateur would receive it, and it would come across their computer, and it would, they would exchange messages just like emails, just like uh, just like uh, text messaging. So they were doing, you know, amateur radio operators were doing that, you know, decades, decades before your phone was developed to do it. So, you know, there's all kinds of stuff you can do. You can do slow scan television. You can actually, you know, send that image over the airwaves through a radio. And and just like your TV receives it over the air, you would send these over the air, and you could send it to to a another person, say, you want to take the all right, let me let me let me say it this way. Say that you are in an area that has had some kind of destruction. You could take that image, send it over the airwaves so the emergency operations center could see what you're telling them has happened and it gives them a better idea of what they might need to send out to take care of that situation. Do they need to send trucks? Do they need something bigger? Do they you know, is it are we looking at uh, a bulldozer, or are we looking at a, a backhoe? You know, so you can literally communicate with that kind of that kind of uh, uh, communications back to the OC, or, or even if you want to have fun and just send pictures of your garden to some people you're talking to, you can send them through repeaters, or you can send them over the regular air. And you know, we also have, of course, we have the 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 carrier wave, which is C CW, which is what most people know as Morse code. If you're if you want to talk about uh, or talk to people with Morse code and you enjoy doing that kind of thing, we can do that. Uh, we can do packet, which is some is very much what I was talking about about typing it in and it sending it over the airwaves. And uh, we can do we can do voice. We can do. Uh, Television, we can we talk to satellites, and well, we that can do satellite. Every bit of it without the internet. No, no internet absolutely. Response. No internet, no wires, no nothing. It, when I say no wires, you're not connected to a service like the internet is. We simply broadcast this information off of an antenna out of our radio. You know, and we'll, you know, uh, we talk to the International Space Station. Uh, we talk to uh, the satellites. It can record a message and send that message halfway around the world and broadcast that message, and that person can take it and send another message. So when the satellite comes back into orbit around this side, it it will send off the message. We we do what they call moon bounce, where you actually bounce a signal off of the moon and it comes back down on another part of the earth and is received by another operator, and they do the same thing back, and you can actually talk like that. So there is there is a lot of stuff you can do with, with amateur radio. It's not just storm chasing. It's not just Red Cross and emergency weather. It's, it's a complete hobby. But you guys there in Missouri with the areas group, you're focusing, although you're helping in many facets throughout the community, you guys really work hard um, to focus on weather-related or earthquake, uh, even uh, I, would, I guess you go as far to blizzards or any type of weather anomaly or something where there's a, a loss of life or great damage, you guys work in that facet. That's more of your focus, I would imagine. Yeah, that's, that's what ARI stands for is Amateur Radio Emergency Services, and uh, they are under the uh, ARRL, Amateur Radio Relay League, is, is the parent uh, of of, a, of uh, Aries, and they actually work real hard to keep amateur radio alive, and then our frequency bands open for us to use. But yeah, we we as Aries, we are emergency services oriented and uh, community services oriented, and and we work very hard to be able to provide that kind of that kind of information. When um when when you guys got got on the ground, if you will, at Joplin, and you began working with the EOC. You've been relieved of your Red Cross duties. You're working with the EOC, providing communications across a very broad spectrum and, and helping in a lot of different areas. Uh, I'm sure that you worked with DHS. You worked probably with FEMA. I'm assuming you probably worked with the State Emergency Management Association as well. Uh, how, how were they operating? How did their gear 
uh, I mean, they, they've got the big checkbooks and the bottomless pockets, so they can really go out and purchase some nice stuff. Um, were they dependent on you as well, or were you a, a great complimentary agency, or how did that work? Well, we worked hand in hand. Uh, one of the things we need to understand about the state and federal type of agencies is their radio equipment is designed to work within basically fire, police, that kind of uh, that kind of auspice. What we do, our our communications, we can talk around the world to any kind of radio. And what I mean by that is, you know. FEMA and SEMA work very hard to provide the communications from their their vehicles, and they they had some very very nice communications trucks and stuff out there, and they they were providing um, communications for for like I said, law enforcement between between uh, some of them. With the problem we ran into with FEMA, SEMA, and uh, you know like the National Guard and and outside law enforcement agencies that was coming in to help, outside fire department that was coming in to help, a lot of times their equipment was not compatible with the system that Joplin had. Uh, everyone has bought their own radio system for their city or, or for their for their own agency, and they, they gave specifications. We want this to be able to perform this way. Well, they're kind of, they've kind of put themselves sometimes in a box. Now, I am... I am grateful to say that since Joplin has happened, uh, FEMA, Department of Homeland Security, and uh, State Emergency Management and stuff, we've worked very diligently to be able to communicate with each other, and we have successfully brought that to be where amateur radio is, is now a part of the response. So now they, they're able to get information that their systems wasn't designed to provide. In other words, you know, there are 800 megahertz trunking. Well, we were, you know, UHF, VHF, uh, low band, HF. We could do it all. Uh, you know, our equipment, no matter who the manufacturer was, is designed to talk to each other, you know, around the world. Where when you get into agencies and, and, and you know, for the lack of a better term, uh, communications that, that's built for community use, and I say community, I guess that's probably the wrong word, but built for agency use. You know, they all have their frequencies that's allocated to them, and they're basically in their own little box that way. And we were able to provide some useful information to them at, as we were tearing down. Uh, FEMA came and saw us. We, you know, at the end of our mission, we were getting ready to leave. I had a FEMA representative come down, and he was looking at what we were using and couldn't believe we were able to communicate all through the entire disaster zone and the debris zone and outside of that. And, you know, they were having issues with their equipment saying, okay, we can communicate with this, but we can't really communicate with that. And they basically were trying to piecemeal stuff together to make it work. And we filled gaps for for all those agencies that, that needed us to. And we were able to put radio operators in there and get that information and then we closed the gaps for them and we were grateful to do so. I mean, that's what we're, that's what we did is what we're for. But, uh, afterwards, you know, when, you know, we had uh, state emergency management has worked very closely with amateur radio in district D. Uh, they're great people and they work very hard and they, they support amateur radio communications throughout the state and, they are, you know, they are as grateful to have us as we are to be able to be a part to help them and help people. And FEMA and you know, Department of Homeland Security, both state and federal, uh, we've talked with and, and worked with, and and you know, we're we're not here to say this is ours. We're here to say we're here to help. Right. You know, you need our you need our communications, then you know, we'll we'll certainly help. But yeah, uh, we had they had uh, there was communications stuff there that that didn't work. And it worked for what it was designed to work for. Don't get me wrong. It certainly did. It didn't work as a communication center in a lot of cases, you know, where we were able to provide information from the field, real-time information and everything. A lot of times they were trying to get a hold of somebody and trying to piecemeal a communications network to get that information. Well, by the time 
they could get, and most of the time they couldn't get it done. But if they did get it done, then that was a delayed response to the question that they were needing an answer to right now. So as Aries, we filled that gap very well for them. Yeah, no knock at all towards uh, what was there. Uh, but And not to say that amateur radio is the end-all, be-all, they're the only answer in regards to any type of emergency response. But it's a great complimentary piece that folks who have trained and participated uh, licensed amateurs uh, are able to give back to the community uh, with their with their skills, their equipment, and to fill in the gaps, to plug the holes in, in the federal and state responses. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, you know, one of the things I'd recommend to, to the area groups that are, that are going to hear this is, you know, don't just get to know your emergency operations, uh, your emergency managers and stuff, or whatever their position is called for your counties, but work with other counties, other agencies. Uh, work on work with these big exercises that are put together. Let them know not only that you can communicate, and and certainly you know the, the worst way in the world to try to do that and say hey we can do this. Uh, best way to do this say you know go to the meetings and say listen to them. I'm sorry, listen to them, see what their needs are, and let them know, you know, we could provide this service for you. Uh, we have the capability of doing this if that would help, and let them ask them into the fold and, and get that working relationship built where, you know, uh, certainly I, I believe you're in, you're in South Carolina. You know, you, you guys had some issues with some hurricanes and stuff, you know, moving up and down the coast and and uh, you know this this matrix that we used in in Joplin works everywhere. It's it, it's a simple matrix that we use. So you know, definitely you know, get to know those those folks and and let them learn what you can do. Well, folks, I've enjoyed the time with Cecil. And Cecil, thank you so much for being here with us on Folk Time. Like to have you back if we could. We'll continue the discussion about the recovery in Joplin, and get into some further things regarding the future that you touched on a moment ago of the hobby, and uh, get your thoughts there as well. Folks, his name is Cecil Higgins. His call is Alpha Charlie Zero Hotel Alpha. He is the District Emergency Coordinator for District D, District D Delta in the Missouri State Aries. Cecil, thanks for being a part of the Photon Podcast. We're going to get your, uh, get your links in the show notes uh, along with your after-action report. PowerPoint presentation you put together there as well following the event. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, sir, and I appreciate you having me on the show. So that's going to wrap the episode, episode one of the Photon Podcast. Thanks, you guys, for listening. Thanks for Cecil Higgins coming in. Also, thanks to Kilo Golf 4 Golf Victor Lima and Whiskey Hotel 6 Echo Yankee Yankee for sharing why they became ham radio operators. We'll be back for more next time. Thanks, guys. Until then, 73. Thanks for downloading, listening, and subscribing to AmateurRadio15.com presents Bowtime, the other ham radio podcast. You can find our past episodes, web links, and more at AmateurRadio15.com. That's AmateurRadio15.com. Follow us on Twitter at Bowtime Podcast. And remember to visit our show sponsor, Main Trading Company, at MTCRadio.com. Till next time, 73s.